Hi everyone. Our partners for season two are the therapists who created the Medify app. Medify is an app that promotes mindfulness through emotional and bodily awareness. The folks at Medify are doing their part to increase access to mental health by making Medify a free download. It's easy to use and it provides really informative analytics. I use it and I love it. M-E-T-A-F-I, Medify, is a free download for Android and iOS, so go get it today and begin to be your best self. I always like to say white supremacy is a pyramid scheme. You know, it's this thing where, you know, you're told, this is great, you're going to, you are a millionaire in the making. All you got to do is ABC and you'll be there. And you pull other people in, you buy in, you put everything you have into it. And you're never getting back what you thought you would. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. One of the things that I'm aware of any time that I talk to someone who isn't just like me, especially in a conversation that addresses broad cultural issues, is the pressure that you might take on to represent an entire people group. In your job, you probably take this on all the time, and I was wondering if you have reactions to that pressure. So rarely do we ever actually get space. That you, you take it, you try and make the most of it. You know, I do feel pressure to be representative in a way, more out of duty to community than anything else, not necessarily as a service to like, white people. Our guest today is writer Ijoma Oluo. Ijoma has contributed to publications such as The Guardian, New York Magazine, Jezebel, and many more. She's an editor at The Establishment. Recently, her article for The Stranger on Rachel Dolezal, the white Washington state woman supposedly living as an African-American, was declared by many to be the definitive and final piece on the subject. We weren't as interested in Miss Dolezal as we were in the expansive scope of Ijoma's regular beat. She has a powerful voice that she uses for cultural critique in the categories of race, gender, pop culture, and yes, mental health. Her writing is evidence of a theory that I carry into therapy as a practitioner and a patient, and that is that there is real empowerment and vulnerability. She's not afraid to tell you how she feels, whether those feelings consist of real and genuine anger, or whether she is destigmatizing anxiety and depression. In a recent piece for the establishment called My Beautiful Life On and Off Meds, Ijoma writes, 
This is what my anxiety looks like. I've struggled with it my entire life, and often I do quite well. When I do well, it is not purely because of my effort. In fact, it's mostly due to environment and luck. When the weather is nice, when nobody in my family is sick or in crisis, when I can pay my bills, when my physical health is good, I can manage my lifelong anxiety with exercise, meditation, and engaging hobbies. For me, managing means a few pretty bad days a month and a few pretty bad moments a day. But I'm out of bed and moving and able to get some joy from the world. But when Seattle returns to its famous cold and gray weather and money gets tight and my kids struggle in school, my anxiety turns into a depression that renders me immobile, trapped in my bed for days at a time. When things are bad, I cease to be anything but my anxiety and depression. When things are bad, I go back on medication. It took me a while to understand that those times when I need to go back on medication are not indicative of failure. In fact, recognizing when I need more help and taking action allows me to exert the sort of control I'd been waiting for my entire life. Ijoma's opinions on mental health, its limited access, and how therapists work or sometimes don't work, are necessary for those of us in this field to hear. She's thoughtful, nuanced, and convicting. Here she is. And, and, and it feels like that oftentimes in interviews. There aren't enough, <laughs> there aren't enough black women being asked these questions um, mm. to be able to show the, the nuance of response um, and the variety of response. And that can put a lot of pressure to like get it right, but... You have to do the best that you can and then at the same time try and push for more, you know, opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, you know, stuck in the middle of that. As you're talking, I'm thinking about access people of color have to mental health. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or feelings about access to mental health that is realistic for people in marginalized communities. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's really hard. And I'm someone who, you know, I love therapy um, and, you know, use it on and off as, as needed have for my entire adult life. But I have yet to work with a therapist of color. Hmm. Um, being able to find one. You know, you have all your other criteria, right, of what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. But then being able to find one of any race other than white is almost impossible. And that makes it really tough, especially because being a person of color in America affects your mental health. And a lot of the issues you're talking about are related to that. And and it's this barrier that I think no matter how trained a, a white therapist is going to have a hard time fully understanding. Uh, especially when I haven't had a good therapist, I have. I had a really good one lot, and, and she was very cognizant, I think, of our shortcomings, which is the most I think you can ask for. If you can't have someone who can fully, you know, empathize, at least they can understand that they can. Also things like hours that they're available. So many therapists I know, they're like, we're here till five. Hmm. Really, then you're really only asking people who have work flexibility and have the sort of like, you know, salary jobs that they can take time off to be able to access those services. So many people, especially hourly workers and people of color are more likely to be in those situations, are not able to make a three o'clock appointment. Sure. 
And that for me, I think, has been huge. And that's also been huge for my kids, you know. You know, I have one child on the spectrum. Both of them have ADD and one who suffers from anxiety and depression. And trying to find, as a working single mom, somewhat of quality who can work with them, you know, and they're like, oh, we have a 2 p.m. and a 3 p.m. <laughs> like, my kids get out of school at 2.45 and 3.45. In no way does this work. You know, they really forget that. I think people forget they want to set their business hours, and I get that. But also, if you're doing a service like this to the community and you're at all concerned about making sure that poor people and people with less work flexibility are able to make it, you're going to have to be more flexible with your hour. Hmm. So you mentioned before that with when you've worked with white therapists in your past, that the best that you could hope for is someone who acknowledges the gap in experience between the two of you. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how, how that organically comes up. What is more helpful, I guess, is what I'm curious about. You know, for me, the last therapist I saw, she was absolutely wonderful. She was really upfront with it in our very first getting to know you session. Hmm. And she just asked, she said, you know, I am a white woman and while I try and be well read and well educated on the issues of race in America there are things that I am not going to be able to fully empathize with and I'm not going to be able to share that experience with you I'll do my best to you know offer sensitive advice but I need to make sure that you know that and ask if that's a problem for you just having that stated I felt more seen in that one session than I had with every other therapist I had ever seen. <laughs> you know, because you try to, you know, you slowly work your way up. As a person of color, you went through the same calculation with your therapist that you do in any other relationship with a white person. So, you know, you're going and you're trying to get help. Like you're trying to talk about issues in your life. And then you're also trying to gauge the waters and think, am I safe now to start talking about this? And that's really not a, that's not a pressure that you want to have um, in therapy is to know whether or not it's going to go okay if you discuss one of the major stress inducers in your life. You know, you're there because you want to talk about it or you need to talk about it, but you still have to do the same calculation. Do I trust them? You test a little bit, you try a little thing and it becomes awkward and uncomfortable. You're doing most of the work to make your therapist comfortable. It stops you from really opening up. Even if you do all of the work once, it changes, you know, and the reality of being a person of color in this country, in this city changes year after year. Even if you think you know, you don't know. You'll never fully know, and you have to continuously learn not only from the scholarship that's out there and from the reports that are out there, but from your patients when I'm living it day in and day out. And I think a lot of times people, especially people I think who have made an effort to try and understand race more, oftentimes become even more stubborn about insisting that they know it because they have put that effort forth. But it changes, you know, and it and it grows. You know, my son's experience as people of color is different from mine generationally and financially we're in different spots than I was as a kid you know and so for me to say this is what it's like to be black in America that's my reality but for them it's going to be different and I think a lot of people even if they put those efforts out and they put so much of their they're so proud of themselves for being you know putting this this good work forward um, but they forget 
that, you know, you don't get a degree in it because it changes and it moves, you know, and you become outdated almost as soon as you learn it. And I think a lot of times we run across this ego of, how dare you? I worked so hard to be good at this. I worked so hard to get this. It's never going to be enough because it's something that, that constantly changes. That's like mental health too, right? That things change, that you roll with the punches and that you re- you're constantly reevaluating. One of the themes that I've uh, found in some of the pieces that you've written, uh, how the importance of understanding, that you're constantly developing new understandings of how depression and anxiety work for you. Yeah, I think so, so often we want these answers and there's this dialogue, right, that you will, you know, and even when we watch films, even about like mental illness, right? You know, you don't know what's going on and then you get this diagnosis and you know. And then you get this treatment plan and you're okay. And answer solved, you know. And I think the way in which we talk about uh, the human brain is so inaccurate because the truth is, is even our best scientists know very little mm-hmm. you know, about the brain. And our brains are constantly building new pathways and adjusting and learning and changing. And I think that the most empowering thing that I've found to be able to accept is that my brain is going to change and to empower myself to change how I deal with that, I think has been probably the healthiest thing I've been able to do. To let go of feeling like it's a failure when something doesn't work anymore or if what I need changes because our brain, it's a growing machine. You know, it's this amazing computer that is constantly recoding and reprogramming. To act as if the solution that worked six months ago is going to work next, I think a lot of times we feel like that means that we're broken. But instead, I think if we look at it and instead it means that we are adapting almost as quickly and that we are being just as nimble and creative, I think it becomes a lot more empowering to say, no, you know what, I've got a solution and I'm not stuck to adding one solution. And as my brain changes and what I need changes, then what I give it will change and the solution's going to change. In a recent piece for Angzi magazine called We Must Name Our Anger, Ijoma writes on her experience of anger and how culture reacts to the authentic anger of a black woman. She writes, I used to work very hard to avoid that descriptor. I used to busily reassure people that no, I am not angry. I used to force smiles and swallow pain and reassure everyone that I was fine, but I am not fine, I am angry. The same week I read this article, Two Portland, Oregon men were murdered for coming to the defense of two young girls of color on a public transit train. The perpetrator had been harassing the girls with racist tirades. These two examples, one of vulnerable anger and the other of hateful rage, stood opposed to each other in my mind. Ijoma's thoughtful reflections on her anger and its connection to her fear versus the uninformed and cowardly act of a bigot. In an era where rage is considered a political value for some, that feels different and disingenuous than expressing the pain and fear that comes with injustice. We talked about the difference. The importance of naming your anger and holding it up to the light and understanding it. I actually used to lead anger management groups for individuals on probation. These men sitting around me had been socialized to think that their anger was by default bad. 
instead of possibly being useful. And there was so much shame around that. And certainly they had acted out their anger in sometimes shameful ways uh, because they were confirming what they had already been taught through their actions. As I was reading your piece, I was like, this isn't just limited to men on probation. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny is even in response to that piece, I had people reaching out to me and telling me how, you know, how I should still just let it go. You know, <laughs> say, I read this and I get it, but you should still just let it go. <laughs> and it was such a, like, <laughs> I'm like, well, then you didn't actually read it. <laughs> like, did you actually read it? Because anger isn't a thing you can wish away. It's not pleasant. People you know, don't love being angry. It's an awful feeling. It is a response to something that's happening. And, and oftentimes it's, you can control often, you know, how it manifests or try mm -hmm. to. But to actually say, no, don't feel angry, that's almost impossible. And the truth is, you can't heal from things that are still happening. And oftentimes when we look at anger, and so often people who suffer from, like, systemic abuses, um, the solution people often talk about is how to let go of the anger. But how can you let go of, an ang of anger over something that's still occurring? That's the work you do when it's over, you know? <laughs> and you're mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm no longer being threatened. I'm no longer being harmed. How do I now release this anger? But when it's still happening... It's still an anger-inducing thing. You can't let go of, you know, someone kicks you in the shin, and then you, you're angry, and then you're like, okay, let it go. But if they're still kicking you in the shin, you really, there's no amount of meditation that's going to stop you from being angry, because they're still kicking you. <laughs> you're still, you know, and, and I think that people forget that, and they don't want to see the way in which systemic abuses are daily occurrences. Over and over and over and over and over. Instead of addressing what can we do to stop what is making you angry and actually getting people and asking what is making you angry. Let's discover this. Let's discover what is feeding that. Instead, people just always assume that it is an entirely internal thing, you know, and that it's someone's failure to be able to control their emotions um, and that what will help them is to be able to let it go. But what will help them, in all honesty, is to stop what is causing the anger. And we don't want to look at that. And oftentimes, especially when it comes to mental health for people in disadvantaged communities, you know, the causes of their, of the problems that they're having, the root causes are still occurring. It's not just passive trauma. It's, it's constant, never-ending trauma. It's every single day microaggression and you know, struggles, and to act like people don't have a right to be angry, it doesn't get rid of the anger, it just adds shame and guilt on top of it. Then people try and find other outlets for it, right, that you learn, oh, okay, well, I guess it's not appropriate for me to be angry about this, but you're still angry. And so then you find people funneling it into really inappropriate spaces, and I see that all the time. I see people... You know, it's funny because as a, as a black woman, I have a lot of reasons to be angry. <laughs> I think. Mm -hmm. Sure. But also, I end up being the receptacle for a lot of people think. Because it's appropriate for a lot of people in white America to be angry at people of color. And so what I find is oftentimes people who are angry about their place in life 
you know, angry about their job insecurity, who are angry about feeling forgotten or neglected or feeling scared or feeling like they're becoming irrelevant, they don't have an appropriate space to put that anger because they're also told that's not a thing to be angry about. And so instead they say, oh, well, I, I can, somebody offers up, well, this is because black people are taking your jobs or they're, you know, taking the attention you want. We could be discussing what's wrong with you, but instead we're discussing, Mm -hmm. you know, black lives matter. And then the people refocus all this anger to me. And because they see you as other, you become like a convenient uh, projection screen for everything that they're not, they don't like about their own life. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, I get emails, I get letters from people who are so angry at what I'm writing and they will, but in their letter, they will list everything wrong that's happened in their life. Like everything, (laughs) you know, they will list, you know, when their mom got sick. Every job they were fired from, they will list every injustice against them because they are told that they're not allowed to be angry and they are not allowed to get that out. And so they're mad at me because they're told it's okay to be mad at me. It's okay to blame a black woman. And then in the same time, they'll try and fit all of that release in there. And I will get these six paragraph letters. And I'm like, you need to talk to someone about these things. Not me, because I'm just a little bit of a writer. <laughs> but you need to talk well, to someone about these things. In that moment, it's almost like they're asking you to be their therapist. Yeah, yeah. For someone to tell you, you should stop being angry, is seems so transparently self-important that it's not about your anger. It's more about their tolerance. Yeah, a lot of it's about comfort. And also, I think, too, I think it, it's threatening to people who are working really hard to suppress their anger. Mm-hmm. to see other people not. It well, feels very thing. like, how dare you? We're in an era where a certain group of people are very much enjoying letting their anger not be suppressed right now and feeling empowered in, in doing so. And when I When I read your article... And when I think about that in comparison or the, you know, the recent tragedy on the Portland train, the difference, it seems like, is vulnerability and reflection. Yeah, I think also, too, that's the really dangerous path that happens when someone comes up and offers you a manufactured way to release anger. And I think a lot of what we're seeing today, especially when we look at things like these alt-right groups, is these people who are angry for legitimate reasons that they have never been given the freedom to explore. Hmm. And then someone hands them a package and says, feeling angry? Here's why. And it's not why. I can guarantee you that nothing wrong with the life of that man who murdered two people on the train Hmm. had to do with Muslim Americans or black Americans. I, I can guarantee you that a lot went wrong in his life, and he has probably suffered a lot, and absolutely none of it had to do with the people that he was attacking. Right. But somebody offered that up to him. He had plenty of groups saying, if your life isn't working out, this is why. If you're feeling angry, this is why. And they gave him a space. Because nobody before had said, if you're angry, you have the freedom to look at your life and figure out why you're angry and figure out what is really missing and what's wrong. Power protects itself. 
And a lot of the way it protects itself is by making us feel like we don't have the right to be angry at its abuses. Anybody, especially I think for white men who have been abused by a system of power that at the same time they're told is theirs to inherit, Hmm. that becomes a very confusing anger because you're told you're supposed to have it all. It's all supposed to be yours. And you don't have it all. And you can't figure out why. And the alternative that you're given is either it's because you are a complete failure. Because you were supposed to have it and it was supposed to be easy and you don't. Or these other people who don't deserve it took it. When the real answer is you were never going to get it. In a 2014 article for XL Jane, titled, I am a strong black woman and I suffer from depression, Ijoma writes, I'm persevering, I handle my business, I take care of people, but I also suffer from depression. All of these things are true. I don't fail because I can't fail. Everything you see about me will be put together. It will be exactly the way that I want it to be. Everything you can't see is a mess. It's this kind of reflective process that makes us authentic. We have to know ourselves, for better or for worse. And I think that ability to blame that Ijoma was discussing before is exactly the opposite of this process. That process is something that you do publicly. I mean, reading your writing, it's very reflective. It's very vulnerable. You talk about your hopes and fears. Is that process for you therapeutic? Is there empowerment and being vulnerable in a public format for you? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I think kind of the general rule I have is, for me, if I'm really afraid of someone finding out something about me, that's when I know it's something I need to talk about. I mean, I think it's a lucky coincidence that I was just kind of born this kind of oversharing person. Right. I was always the person being, you know, who was being told, oh, my God, Gemma, you have to stop talking about this. <laughs> like I would just <laughs> I would say anything. It never occurred to me as, a, you know, even as a small kid, like it didn't make sense to me. I would always be like, why? Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we talk about this? And of course, society changes that for most people. And I was a little more stubborn than most. But what I learned also is I think partially because. I've had a hard life. I've had a long life. But I've also had a life where I haven't had time to play a lot of the games that people ask us to play when it comes to what's what's bothering us. Like, I didn't have time to figure out what I should or shouldn't say. I've been a single mom since I was 20. And I've been, you know, fighting chronic disease since I was my entire life. And I didn't have time to, like, figure out, oh, is this appropriate to say that I'm frustrated or is it not? You know, like, I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't have the time for that. Like, I was too busy. There were some times where I would never talk about things. And what I, um, what I figured out was that someone was going to be telling my story for me if I didn't say it myself. And it, and it wasn't going to be right. And then I discovered from feedback from people, you know, the moment I would say something that I was kind of afraid to say. That was always the time that I would hear from the most people who suddenly felt like they had permission to acknowledge those things about themselves as well. And so now I just kind of have this rule, like, 
anything. Like, if, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see, like, I will just tweet sometimes the most embarrassing, awkward stuff. And that's literally because I realized, like, oh, my God, I would never say that. And then I'm like, oh, that means I really should say it. Because there's someone else out there who thinks that they should never ever say, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. And so I'll just say it. Tell me if this is right, but it, it seems like people are hungry for that, that it's becoming less and less common. Maybe that's the proliferation of social media and the way we interact now. But people seem hungry for more vulnerable human connection. Yeah, definitely. And I do think social media has a huge amount to do with it. Because before, you know, how you consume all the messages you got for everything was so heavily filtered. It's kind of like eating margarine all the time. If you only eat margarine, you're like, that's cool. And you eat butter. And suddenly you're like, what were those gross chemicals I was eating for so long? <laughs> I think oftentimes, especially when it comes to writing and communication about life in general, we read these really staid, like, you know, um, grammatically perfect, heroic stories of life. And we, it's all we hear, and we think that that's the way it's supposed to be. And then you hear authentic people stumbling through real-life experiences, and you go, oh, wait, no, this is, oh, my gosh, this is what it feels like to interact with genuine human experience. <laughs> and and it, it changes what you look for. It, it suddenly makes the rest of it taste like margarine, and you can't handle it. You want more authenticity. And I think, like, the Internet has definitely given people a better ability to see authenticity because if you never see it reflected in like your culture, you end up feeling like you're the one that's inauthentic. And then when you get to see it out in the wild and you get to like, you know, run across this mirror of yourself in print or on screen, suddenly you go, Oh my God. Oh, that's, that's what it is. That's, that's what reality looks like. And mm -hmm. you look for it. And I think it has definitely, I see people who are really seeking that out, and it's so wonderful to see because it's also diversifying the type of human experience that we connect with because it doesn't even have to be your experience. Once you start realizing what authenticity looks like, you also start seeing it in experience that's different from yours, which I think is also one of the biggest benefits of it all is to be able to say, you know what, this isn't me, but I can tell this is real. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes us better community members and it makes us kinder to ourselves. Going back to the to the anchor topic, that authenticity is another way of making that distinction. That for someone to say, "I'm angry because these people are invading my country," is incredibly inauthentic. It's not, it's not really what's going on at all. Yeah, you know, I wish that we looked at more. You know, I, I wish oftentimes that you know I could get. I mean, I don't, and I do, because I don't want to sit in a room with a bunch of, like, angry racists. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wish I could also get, like, okay, so day to day, what is making you mad? Like, when you wake up, when you're going through your day, when you're at work, when you're at home with your kids, and get to the root of that. Because whatever anger they have, there is a genuine and worthy cause in it mm -hmm. somewhere. Right? We're not taking perfectly happy, healthy, you know, well-advantaged people and suddenly making them angry for no reason. They're not falling into it from hobby. Whatever that story is, it deserves to be told, but it's not what's being told. And that's, it's a real loss. It's a loss of opportunity, too, because there's this 
there's a platform afforded to what is honestly probably our angriest population right now of 30-something white men. And they're not able to really investigate themselves enough to be able to authentically describe their experience. And that's, that's such a waste. You know, yeah, I'm scrambling sure. for platform. We're all scrambling for platform to talk about the things that were impacting us. And there's this huge platform that's all being used for this obfuscation. There is a gap in experience for sure, but there's also some real human stuff that connects people who have that gap in experience when you allow the authentic interactions to happen. Yeah, and I mean, those conversations are so hard to have. And oftentimes, you know, people set out with these great intentions and they don't quite work out because you have to actually have the range, right, mm-hmm. to be able to help people, like, find what it is. And, and setting that in the 30 minutes is really difficult. I think these we have two separate issues, right? What oftentimes ends up happening is we say, oh, it's not race, it's actually this. But then what we do is we kind of set the racism piece aside as if racism isn't actually a problem, right? And we have two very big problems, right? We have problem one, which is there is something very, very wrong. There are real reasons why white men in America are angry. And then we also have a huge problem, which is is that they are so easily able to funnel that into racism. Those are two very, very important problems, and you can't say, oh, because there are logistical reasons, there are real reasons why white men in America are angry, we're going to set this racism piece aside because that racism is also at the same time creating huge amounts of issues and health and safety issues for people of color in America. And so those are two very important issues. And oftentimes what happens when we try and have these conversations is people think that if they can get to the root cause and they can just focus on that and then it kind of absolves people of the responsibility of the harm done by funneling that anger through racist channels. You can't let one go, right? You have to look at both. Those are two things that need to be treated. One is whatever the root cause of the anger is. Two is why you think it is at all appropriate, what part of your sociological upbringing, what part of your moral fiber thinks it's appropriate to funnel this anger onto people of color. And those are two very important issues that need to be addressed. And if you only address one, it's still a failure. It's controversial to some people in my field that the cultural experience and the individual experience are related. And it sounds like you might also find that as one of the failings or one of the shortcomings of my field. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I always try and tell people you know, a lot of times what you'll hear is you have to be able to look at the situation as it is. But obviously, external viewers aren't seeing a situation as it is. When you are part of a systemic oppression, it is both the individual coming up to you and contributing and the entire sum of that experience throughout your life combined. You can't separate the two. If someone walks by and they're throwing a rock at you, a tiny pebble, and you get mad, and people are like, it's just a tiny pebble. But by the time the millionth pebble gets dropped on you, it's not just a pebble, right? It is both the bulk of pebbles that have been dropped on you that you are now crushed under. But it is also each individual person who adds to that, right? It's the entirety of it 
and the individual experience. And you can't separate the two. And every time that someone comes up and adds to the onslaught of kind of systemic abuses, you are both in an individual interpersonal situation and you are in a systemic situation. And while it may not seem fair to the person encountering that, and just to an outsider, it may seem like the reaction is overblown. Hmm. You know, there are two problems at work that really can't be fully separated. And we do all have some kind of responsibility for the ways in which we do contribute to the systemic abuses of others through what oftentimes seems like small actions. Being a woman in the workplace and being, having, uh, you know, the tiniest sexist comments over and over and over and over and over creates the environment, you know, that makes women feel unsafe. And each comment is a part of that and therefore owns a piece of the abuse that becomes larger than the individual. And it becomes both of those things where you have to address the individual who is contributing to this, but then also the system has to be addressed as well. And empathy and visibility has to be given to the magnitude of that entire experience. And so often it's not done. And so often it's treated as unhealthy to be feeling the magnitude of the experience. So often you're told that you're overreacting and it's overblown and all you need to do is look at these as individual things, but you really can't. You're bruised, you're battered. It's happening to all, you know, people who've never experienced it themselves. You know, if you only occasionally have someone come up and insult you, you're not going to understand why someone would completely fly off the handle at what is then the 10th insult they received that day. Um, you don't see it all, and you don't, and you haven't experienced it in that sense. And I think that those have to be taken in together. And I think that's oftentimes missing from mental health, especially when you look at systemic abuses, is that we act like a healthy response is to be able to divorce yourself from your entire life experience, and it's not. How is your mental health process today? You know, I think I am, I am super. I feel really healthy right now. Really secure in a way that I haven't in a while. And, you know, I, now I'm writing it out. Like, I, I'm very aware that, you know, my my stressors will increase or decrease, and that will change. I've been focused a lot more on my physical health, which has definitely helped a lot. But honestly, I've just, it's been good times. I worked a lot on meditation and dealing with my anxiety, which was the primary, lately had been, you know, my primary kind of stressor was you know, physical responses to my anxiety. And right now, the tools I have have really worked. So that feels really good. I feel actually like I'm climbing out. I had a really tough couple of years. Even when life changes for the better, it's a huge stressor. <laughs> and, right. you know, building up a writing career, buying a house, taking my sons through a lot of their own mental health struggles and also just general neurodiversity issues. It was really, really, really stressful. I took a lot of time to work on that for me. So right now, like, what I'm trying to do is I'm kind of checking in with myself, looking at the indicators I know of when I'm 
maybe need a little more help looking at, am I staying home because I feel like staying home or am I staying home because like the thought of people is too much? Um, And I'm kind of looking at things like that and kind of gauging myself and constantly evaluating. Is this who I actually am or is this the way I'm compensating for stressors that I don't want to admit to myself right now? And, you know, to see whether or not I need to call in some assistance. And so that's kind of where I'm at and, and really trying to take some time for myself, being more firm with my own personal boundaries. It's been a really good couple of months, a really easier couple mm-hmm. of months for me. I don't know how it will go. Summers are always a bit tougher because <laughs> you get your kids home all day and you're trying to work. <laughs> But I'm just, I'm trying to enjoy it. If you struggle with mental health issues, if you struggle with anxiety or depression, it's really easy to to actually be anxious about the good time and worry if it's going to go away. And I've finally, I think, gotten to the point where I can see it all as part of the process. And that means I have every right to enjoy every good day. And you have to be able to remember that it's not always like that. You know, like, it's so easy to forget when things are tough, but it's not always tough. And I think especially if you spent the entire time that it wasn't tough worrying that it was going to get tough again, you know, you're, it's going to be even harder. I'm just enjoying it right now, and I want my kids to see me enjoying it. You know, I want my kids to see, yeah, that life has a roller coaster, but when it's good, you're allowed to just call it good and to enjoy it and live in it. There's no amount of preparation mentally that you can really do for the tough time. All you can really do is kind of ruin the good times for yourself. If you're open-hearted and you don't look at it as any indicator of success or failure, I don't take full credit for the good times either. I fully accept. Some of it is going to be circumstances, it's going to be brain chemistry, and it's always going to be a bad way. And I just try and get as much joy out of it all as I can. Ijoma, thanks so much for being willing to talk to me. Thanks for having me. This has been Between Us. Our sincere thanks to Ijoma Oluo. You can find plenty of her writing online, especially at The Establishment. Follow her on social media if you don't already. We'd also like to thank our partners for Season 2, Medify, a free download on iOS and Android. Go get it today. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. Our original soundtrack is slated to go online at iTunes on September 15th. We'll try and remind you when it does. As usual, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can contact us at betweenuspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, leave us a review on iTunes if you don't mind. And until next time, take care.